Good evening, friends. Franz Weinschenk here to welcome you to Valley Writers Read, where tonight we get to hear an authentic valley-type story that's set right here in the heart of our valley in the town of Kingsburg. The author is Marilyn Larson, who currently lives in Clovis. So make yourselves comfortable, because once this story gets started, you're not going to want to miss any of it. Once again, the author is Marilyn Larson. She entitles her story, My Stuga. Our reader is Jay Parks. My Stuga. I always do what my parents tell me to do. John, eat everything on your plate. John, take out the trash. John, wash your hands. John, keep your pants zipped up. John, John, John. Sometimes I hate the sound of my own name. Whenever I hear it, someone is telling me what to do. I know what to do. I've been told enough times. John! My mother is calling me now. Hurry up in there! I'm trying to get ready for school in my small bedroom just off the kitchen. My straight blonde hair is slicked down with brill cream, and my shirt is buttoned all the way to the top. My pants are zipped. This morning I had to wait for my father to finish in the bathroom before I could get in. I should have gotten up earlier. Tomorrow I will get up earlier. John, come and eat your breakfast. Our house, which my dad calls our stuga in Swedish, is a small yellow wood frame house just on the edge of town. We have five acres surrounded by a white pasture fence with nothing much on them but trees and weeds, my mother's vegetable and flower gardens, a huge storage shed, and a smaller shed that's just about ready to fall down. The little shack is where I keep my old bike parts and where I go to get away from everyone. I want to go there now to give my ears a rest and to get a look at that nasty magazine I found in the service station bathroom. It's buried under a big stack of old newspapers and empty cartons. I hope my mother doesn't find it. She won't find it. She never goes in there because she's afraid of spiders and there are plenty of those hanging around in there. John, you'll be late for school. Your father's the principal, for heaven's sake. You have to set a good example for the other kids. You can't embarrass your father. She sounds sharper than usual. Coming, I yell. The shed will have to wait. I can't embarrass my father. I run to the kitchen and sit down at our yellow formica and chrome table. I wait for my mother to say something about last night when she caught me peeking at her through the bathroom window, but she says nothing. I vigorously attack my cream of wheat, making sure that the bowl is empty and shiny. I wouldn't want anyone in Europe to starve because I left something in my bowl. I study the little blue flowers in the yellow wallpaper and wonder why she doesn't mention last night. Shame on you, she yells. You're a nasty little boy. How could you? She grabs her pink chenille robe with one hand to cover herself. 
and shakes her fist at me with the other. I run to the shed to hide for a while, and then I go inside. Everyone has gone to bed. Oh, please don't let her tell my father. I wipe my mouth, fold my napkin, take the bowl to the sink, and run outside to the driveway. Bye, mother, I shout. Mother doesn't answer. She walks over to the sink and begins running the water for the dishes. She stays inside the house instead of coming out to wave goodbye, but I can see her watching us from the kitchen window. Her face looks pale. My father is already out there in our new Oldsmobile 88, ready to leave as soon as I slam the door shut. His aftershave smells like spice, but not good like the spice you taste in apple pie. He doesn't say anything as he backs out of the driveway onto the road. It's always like that. But this time I wonder if my mother has told him about last night. I can tell he thinks I'm a horrible son, but he doesn't say so. He just looks angry and doesn't speak to me. I get the silent treatment. I tell myself I have to be better. I just have to. Our school, Washington Elementary, is a white two-story wood-frame building with halls inside between the classrooms. Tall green cypress trees stand on each side of the front doors. My father's office is on the first floor just inside the entry. When we arrive there, my father parks the car in his spot next to the flagpole, gets out, and heads toward his office without a word to me. I watch him as he straightens his striped tie and buttons his suit jacket. He looks back at me with a glare that tells me I'd better be good in class. I could feel my stomach churn. I have to be good. I just have to. As I run inside and upstairs, I can smell the sawdust and oil compound that the janitor has used for cleaning the floors. It makes me sick, but not as sick as the chalk dust that's always in the air. The odor of sharpened pencils greets my nose as I enter my fourth-grade class. Miss Anderson is waiting at the door for me with a smile. I am on time. Our classroom consists of four rows of eight desks, each connected to the desk in front of it. I sit in the first desk on the row right next to the windows, where I can look out at the big oak trees and the little kids playing at recess. Miss Anderson comes over, pulls down the little seat in front of my desk, and sits down to look at my work. Miss Anderson likes me, because I always know the answers to the social study questions. I read what she tells us to read, and then I go to my set of Encyclopedia Britannica to find out more about whatever subject we are studying. Ah, this looks interesting, Miss Anderson tells me. I like your products, Graf. Why are you so interested in Michigan? The Ford plant is there, I tell her. I love to read about cars. You're doing such a nice job, John. You know so much about other states that it sounds as if you've actually been to every one of them. I hope she tells my father. I want him to know I've been good in school. During math practice... I stare at Miss Anderson and imagine her standing at the blackboard naked. As she turns to the class and smiles, I can almost see her private place, 
just like I saw my mother's. My pants feel a little tight, so I wiggle in my seat. That feels kind of good. And then I start to think about that nasty magazine in the shed. Oh, please, don't let my mother find it. Would you like to use the restroom, John? Miss Anderson asks. Yes, ma'am. Thank you, I say. Inside the bathroom, I'm alone. It smells like wet brown paper towels. I study the little white floor tiles shaped like chicken wire and try to count the black ones that are scattered about. Someday, I'm going to figure out the pattern. When I'm finished, I take time to rub myself a little. Oh, please, don't let anyone come in and see me, please. I stop. I zip up my pants and quickly wash my hands. After school, I wait for my father out on the playground beneath a large oak tree. There's some boys on the grass playing catch, but they don't ask me to play. I don't want to play anyway, because I don't want to sweat or get my clothes dirty. I concentrate on my social studies book. Someone yells over at me, Look at Einstein with his nose in a book! Everybody laughs. I don't care. I'm good in school. My father drives us silently down the tree-lined main street of our town on the way home. His tie is still straight, and his suit is only a little wrinkled. We live in Kingsburg, but everybody calls it the Swedish village. We have a Swedish bakery that always smells like fresh bread baking and coffee perking, a Swedish delicatessen that grinds its own potato sausage, a Swedish Baptist church, and a Swedish Lutheran church. Dad always stops at Larson's Market to pick up something that my mother has asked him to bring home. Dad takes mother grocery shopping on Saturdays, but she always runs out of milk or bread or sour cream for the pickled herring during the week, so he makes this little stop every day. The market is crammed full of people buying last-minute groceries for supper. My father smiles, waves his hand, and is friendly to everyone. He doesn't say anything to me. The market smells awful. The sawdust on the floor of the meat department smells sour, and the meat smells like old blood. I think I will eat only vegetables from now on. Vegetables and pastry. At home, I read until I'm called for dinner. The three of us sit down in our small kitchen. We hold hands and pray. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. Amen. Every day we say the same prayer. Every day except Sunday, we eat dinner at 5 o'clock. On Sunday, we have dinner at 1 o'clock after we get home from church. Tonight, we sit and eat our Tuesday night dinner, little round Swedish meatballs. My stomach begins to churn again. I don't want to eat the meat but I have to clean my plate. Why couldn't it be a Thursday night when we have pea soup and pancakes? Mother, Dad says, may I have another plate of meatballs? Without a word, my mother takes his plate over to the stove and refills it. She sets it down on the table in front of him, rubs her hands on her apron, and looks away. What's bothering you, Mother? he asks her. Mother shakes her head and picks at her food. 
Dad looks at me and glares. I take that to mean that I am, as usual, the problem. But does he know? He couldn't know, or he would have taken me out behind the shed for a whipping by now. When my mother finally says something, it's about her garden. I planted my spring bulbs today, she says. And I picked the last of the chrysanthemums. Don't they look nice? She points to a vase of wilted yellow and gold flowers over on the kitchen counter. They look better in the yard, but I don't tell her. Very nice, my father says. He wipes his mouth and excuses himself. I wash my hands and go back to my room. When can I sneak out to the shed? My mother has already gone to bed, but my father is sitting in the kitchen, reading the bee. There's no way to get out without being seen. When I do come out of my room, it's to use the bathroom and get cleaned up for bed. I notice that Mother has placed a new set of curtains made with thick pink terry cloth so that no one, even someone outside on a stepladder, can see in. I wash my hands and face, brush my teeth with Colgate toothpaste, and go back to my room. I put my Boy Scout flashlight under my pillow so that I can use it later to go outside. I do my homework and read something in the encyclopedia about Michigan and then look at some pages telling me about life in Japan. I can hear my father locking up for the night. Maybe I better wait until tomorrow to go out there. Tonight, I'll have to imagine what I saw in that magazine. I go to sleep with my hand inside my pajamas. It feels so good. My mother won't see me. She's asleep. Mother has made a pot roast with potatoes, carrots, and onions for our Wednesday night dinner. The meat looks and smells greasy. I pick at the globs of fat away from my meat, but that doesn't help. My stomach feels queasy. I mash my potatoes into little pieces and pile them on top of the meat. Then I chop my carrots into small cubes and work those into the potatoes. I butter a slice of bread to use as a pusher. While I eat, I try not to breathe. That way I can't taste my food. We've been invited to Calvin's for Christmas dinner, my father says after a few bites. He called me today at work to ask about it. Wouldn't you like that, mother? We can bring along some of your good cookies and pies. Mother shrugs her shoulders and runs her fingers over the smooth tabletop. I suppose that'll be okay, she says. Better than having that whole tribe over here. Either place, those two boys of his get on my nerves with their running around like wild Indians. The way they act just isn't proper. Dad peers at Mother over the top of his glasses. His left eyebrow is raised and his lips are pressed together. Will you call Hannah tomorrow and let her know? All right, Mother says. He's your brother, so I guess we ought to go. All right, I think. Maybe we can explore the riverbank and look for arrowheads and birds' nests and stuff. John, my father says, pointing at me with his butter knife, you'll behave yourself at Uncle Calvin's, won't you? 
My fork falls out of my hand and clanks onto my plate. John! I'm sorry. Yes, sir, I answer. I'll be good. I carefully pick up my fork and stir my food with it. Mother gets up to clear the table. She looks at my plate and frowns at me. I stuff the rest of the food into my mouth along with a piece of bread. I quickly chew the food, wash it down with my milk, and hand her my plate. As she reaches for my father's plate, I see him rub his hand over hers. She jerks the plate away from the table and walks over to the sink. My father sighs, gets up from his chair, and leaves the room. I slide out of my chair and dash to the bathroom to wash my hands and rinse out my mouth. Tonight, I'll think about Christmas at Uncle Calvin's. It is finally Christmas Day. I can smell the spicy aroma of Mother's pies even before I wake up. I jump out of bed and get dressed quickly. In one corner of the living room, I see a small Christmas tree with a couple of strings of lights and some colored balls hung on it. I plug in the lights, and the beige, wheat-patterned wallpaper behind the tree is instantly awash with bright colors. I kneel in front of the tree and look at the packages placed neatly under it. There are two presents for each of us. Miss Anderson has helped the class to make beautiful molded candles from the melted paraffin and red crayons for our mothers, and paperweights made of painted rocks for our fathers. I have wrapped these gifts in green tissue paper and tied with red yarn. I have made my own tags, each shaped like a toy car. John, breakfast is ready. Come on in and eat, mother calls from the kitchen. I have to go, I tell myself, but I can't seem to move a muscle. My eyes are fixed on the sparkling colored lights and ornaments. John! I can hear the loud clomping of my father's shoes coming toward the living room. I have to get up. I have to be good today. Coming! I yell. I jump up and squeeze past my father through the kitchen doorway. I scoot into my chair and wait for my parents to sit down with me. I hope I get a race car, I wish as we say our prayer. When we finally get into the living room, my father passes out the gifts and tells us we have to take turns opening them. Dad sits in his brown leatherette armchair with one of his legs crossed over the other. I notice his straight blonde hair is beginning to get thinner on top, and I wonder if I'll look like him when I'm his age. Mother and I sit on the brown and black mohair sofa. I rub my hand slowly over the cushion. It feels like my old teddy bear. Mother brushes some straying strands of grayish-blonde hair from her forehead and opens her gift from Dad first. It's a new blue chenille bathrobe. I think about the pink one she grabbed the night I peeked in at her. My face feels hot. I look away as Mother thanks Dad. It's very nice, she says. Then my father opens his gift from Mother. It's a brown sweater vest to go with his brown tweed suit, and it reminds me of the navy blue one she gave him last year. He thanks her and shoves the sweater back into the box. At last it's my turn. Before I untie the bow and rip the paper off the Aubon blocks, I cross my fingers for luck. I take the top off the box... 
Slippers. A pair of slippers. Brown. As brown as our mohair sofa. I paste a smile onto my face. Well, my mother asks, don't you like them? You've outgrown your old ones, and you don't want to have cold feet in the mornings, do you? No, I mean, thank you, mother. They're fine. We go around again, and this time mother opens her gift for me. It's pretty, John. Thank you. How did you make it, mother asks. I open my mouth to speak, but my father answers. Miss Anderson helped all her students make them. She's quite a clever teacher. He's smiling. What do you have in there, Dad? Don't know for sure, he answers. It feels like a rock, but I'll bet it's a paperweight. I'm sure we can thank Miss Anderson for this, too. I look down at our carpet. It is light green with darker green vines and leaves. I try to count the leaves, but there are too many. When I look up, Dad is uncovering a shiny purple object with pink and orange dots on it. He's not smiling. Thank you, John, he says, covering the rock with his hand. I'll keep it in my office at school. He puts the paperweight back in its wrapping and places it in the box with the sweater vest. Now they're looking at me again. I know what's in my other package, but I pretend to be surprised. It's a brown jacket that Mother bought me at Jacobson's department store when she thought I wasn't looking. I try it on. It's a little too big, but I guess I'll grow into it. At least that's what Mother always says when she buys my clothes. I thank them both and carry my things into my room. When I look back, I see my father staring at the carpet. I wonder if he's counting the leaves. Uncle Calvin lives only ten miles from our house, but it seems like a long drive. We bump along a narrow country road close to the river. We pass bare vineyards with the vines pruned and neatly tied, some with brush in between the rows waiting to be shredded. The trees in the peach and plum orchards are flat on top, reminding me of the haircuts I've seen on some of the high school boys. The tall trees next to the river look odd, with bare gray branches wearing only clumps of green mistletoe. When we reach a big, white, two-story house, we turn into a dirt driveway and pull up behind an old John Deere tractor. A tired-looking German shepherd ambles up to the car and stares at us. He barks a couple of times, and the front door opens. My stomach does little flips when everyone comes pouring out of the house. Uncle Calvin is smiling and waving, Aunt Hannah is waving, too, and the boys are running and yelling. I grin and wiggle my fingers in a greeting to my uncle and aunt. John! John's here! shouts James, my favorite cousin. He's a year older than I am, and he knows the riverbank like the back of his hand. Yay! Tommy yells. He's only six, but he's smart, too. They run up to the car, and James opens my door. Mother frowns as I get out and scramble into the house with James, but I pretend I don't see her. I race upstairs with James, and Tommy follows. James and I try to hold the door closed so Tommy can't get in, but he makes a racket with all of his pounding and screaming, and I hear Uncle Calvin yelling for him to stop. We let Tommy in, and he tackles me. 
James sits on me and holds me down while Tommy tickles me. I laugh until I'm afraid I'll wet my pants and then I beg them to stop. Boys! Uncle Calvin comes into the room with my mother close behind. You're being a bit noisy in the house. Why don't you go outside and play until we call you for dinner? His smile covers his whole face and his blue eyes are twinkling. My mother starts to speak, but Uncle Calvin holds up his large hand to stop her. Boys need to be outside where the air is fresh. They'll find a million things to do, and they'll be out of our hair while we get a little visit before dinner. John, don't get yourself all dirty, my mother says. Remember, you're wearing your Sunday pants. We are down the stairs and out the front door before I can say, Yes, ma'am. Want to play mumbly peg, James asks. I've got a brand new pocket knife. Got it for Christmas from my folks. James pulls out a red pocket knife and opens it to show me the shiny silver blade. Can't, I say. What else did you get? Why not, James asks. Oh, I, I got a jigsaw puzzle and a red metal race car, too. Can't get my pants dirty. Can I see it? The race car? You won't get dirty. We can put down some cardboard for your knees. Yeah, we can look at my stuff later. What'd you get? Just stuff. Come on, let's play. I want to play too, Tommy says. Okay, James tells him. But you don't stand a chance against either one of us. James wins as usual. I get up to check my pants legs. There's only a little dust on my knees. I start to brush it off as we head for the riverbank, but there's too much to look at. We follow the path James and Tommy have made from their many trips here and climb up on the bank and back down again to the little white beach. The water level is down from last year, and it's running slowly downstream. For a little while, we run up and down the beach, in and out of the bushes and all around the trees, looking for anything there is to be found. I pick up a smooth rock that I can use for an art project, and then I throw it back down. Tommy finds a feather and claims it's an eagle's feather, but James and I know better. James finds an empty turtle shell and three smooth pieces of driftwood. I find a knee-high bottle all weathered and cloudy and blow into the neck so that it makes the sound of a boat's whistle. I pick my rock back up and stuff it into my pocket. Tommy finds a stash of white rocks someone must have piled up and saved for later. He throws them one by one into the river, watching the rings they make in the water expand. Even though the weather's nippy, we take off our shoes, roll up our pants legs, and wade in the shallow part of the river. Yowee! Tommy screams. Water's cold! He scoops up some water and splashes it on me. Hey, squirt, see how you like this. I splash him back, and we all start cackling. This water will freeze your pecker off, James says, keeping his distance. My mouth drops when I hear him say, pecker. Tommy laughs, and James slaps his leg and roars when they see the expression on my face. Then I laugh, too. Come on, you big ninny, James says. We better get out of here before you turn into a salt pillar frozen. We jump up out of the water and stamp our feet and whoop. Even above our whooping and yelling, I can hear someone calling our names in the distance. It's dinner, James shouts. Let's go. Last one home is a rotten egg. 
we grab our shoes and kick up dirt as we fly toward the house. On the back step, we rub the dried mud off of our legs and feet and put on our socks and shoes while the old German shepherd inspects. Then we go inside the screen porch to wash our hands. We can use the stationary tub, James says. Give me a boost, Tommy says. I can't reach the faucet. James helps Tommy up and we take turns washing our hands. I wash my face for good measure and try to smooth back my hair. Tommy darts through the gleaming yellow kitchen, into the paneled dining room and around the table. As James and I follow, I catch a glimpse of Uncle Calvin at the counter carving the turkey and Aunt Hannah at the stove dishing up the mashed potatoes. I can hear the dishes rattle as we stomp around the table set with Aunt Hannah's best china and crystal. Tommy pats his mouth and whoops, and James and I do too. When I round the table for the third time, I see someone standing in my way. My father grabs my arm to stop me. In the mirror on the wall behind him, I see Mother standing in the doorway with her hand covering her forehead. Just look at your clothes, my father yells. And where are your manners? I want you to sit down here and behave. I'll take care of you later when we get home. I sit down quickly, and James and Tommy sit down beside me. The house is very quiet. I've got to be good, I think. Please let me be good today. Uncle Calvin comes into the dining room carrying the platter of turkey. Doesn't this turkey just make your mouth water, he asks. This is going to be one special Christmas dinner. My mother brings in the vegetables and jellied cranberry sauce. She and my father exchange glances. Mother bites her lip and my father wipes his brow with his clean white handkerchief. Aunt Hannah hurries in with the mashed potatoes and gravy. Everyone sits down with us and Uncle Calvin says a long prayer. He thanks God for the sun and the rain and the food and good health. Tommy kicks me under the table and I want to giggle. And we thank you for bringing our loving family together on this special day. Amen. I hold my breath as long as I can and I don't laugh. Everyone begins to talk at once and the food is passed around the table. I get to dish up my own food, so I only take a small portion of each item. I'm not hungry. Aunt Hannah beams at Uncle Calvin as he tells us about the time the chickens got loose and had to be chased back into their pen. You should have seen Hannah running and flapping her arms, just like those darned chickens. It was a funny sight, but she got them all back in. We all laugh. Uncle Calvin smiles at me and urges me to eat. Well, there's plenty more where that came from, he says. You'll need lots of nourishment to help you grow into the fine man you're going to become, he says. James snickers and Tommy giggles. Fine man, Tommy says. What about me? You're a fine man already, Uncle Calvin says. James and I laugh. I take more potatoes and notice how good and creamy they taste. I can hear the tapping of forks on the porcelain plates and the tinkling of the glasses. I drink my sparkling cider, and my stomach begins to feel warm. I eat a big piece of pumpkin pie Aunt Hannah brings in, 
and soon I am really full. Uncle Calvin reaches over and squeezes my shoulder. When dinner is over and the dishes are cleared, Uncle Calvin puts his arm around Aunt Hannah and gives her a kiss on the cheek. A kiss for the cook, he chuckles. Aunt Hannah blushes. My mother clears her throat and my father looks away. Then Uncle Calvin asks my mother and father to join them in a game of canasta. James and I go upstairs with Tommy still tagging behind. Can I see your new race car now? I ask James. He shows me the box and then opens it. He takes out a die-cast metal car. It's red with black and silver trim. He runs its wheels over his hand to show me how they spin. Wow, I say. I wish I had one of those. What do you get anyway? Tommy asks. He's sitting on the floor holding a worn old teddy bear. Oh, just stuff, I say. Well, let's play a game of Chinese checkers, James says. He gets out the game and we sit on the floor by Tommy. I pick out the yellow marbles and set them up in the yellow pie-shaped area. James picks the blue marbles and Tommy sets up the red ones. We laugh and slap our knees as we take turns playing. James wins again. No fair, Tommy yells. He jumps on his brother's back and they start to wrestle. I watch as they roll over and over on the floor and bump into the night table. The table overturns and their Felix the cat lamp teeters and then falls to the floor. Tommy gasps and James jumps up to recover the table and lamp. Felix has a broken tail and one broken leg. The lampshade is crushed on one side. I hold my breath waiting for the sound of footsteps coming up the stairs, but I can only hear the low murmur of voices downstairs and a dog barking outside somewhere. James unplugs the lamp and puts away the game. You're going to get it, I finally say. You're going to be grounded for a hundred years. James looks at me and shakes his head from side to side. It's no big deal, he says. I'll probably have to do some extra chores to pay for a new one. Come on, let's go downstairs and get another piece of pie. Tommy is asleep on the floor hugging his teddy bear. James and I go down to the kitchen and help ourselves to more pie. I can hear my aunt and uncle laughing in the other room. I eat my pie and drink the milk James has poured for me. The laughing stops and someone is speaking softly. I hear the sound of chairs moving out from the table. The game is over. Come on, John, I hear my father say. He comes in the kitchen to get me. It's time to go. My father is standing in front of me, holding out my jacket for me to slip into. Uncle Calvin comes in and tussles my hair. In the other room, I can hear my mother thanking Aunt Hannah for the nice dinner and Aunt Hannah thanking Mother for her cookies and pies. Hurry up, John, my father says. We have to go. I scoot over closer to Uncle Calvin and grab his big warm hand. Uncle Calvin squeezes my hand and then he reaches down to give me a big bear hug. I hang on to his neck for a few seconds and I hug him too. I can't 
go back to my stuga, I think. Not now. Not ever. This is how I want to live. Here is where I want to be. But I have to go. I just have to. I feel like I'm going to throw up. Everyone is staring at me, and I can hear my heart beating. My father is frowning, and my mother is rubbing her hands together. John, my father says harshly, what's the matter with you? My mouth opens as I look over at my uncle Calvin and then up at my father. The words I hear coming out of my mouth sound far away, like someone else is saying them. I don't want to go, I say. I don't want to go home. That was Jay Parks reading My Stuga, which, as we learn, means my home, and some home it turned out to be. From the beginning, there's a palpable feeling of tension between John and his parents. He's a fourth grader, probably around nine or ten, progressing into adolescence, curious and nervous, and feeling guilty about his sexual urges. He feels ashamed about having peeked at his mom in the shower and for having hidden that nasty magazine out in the shed. It's a period in all kids' lives that's awkward, but in John's case, magnified because both his father and mother seem to be so terribly formal and unapproachable, very strict and super correct. Well, since his dad is the principal of his son's primary school, he probably feels he must set an example of respectability and decorum. And as we heard, When they go over to their uncles and aunts for Christmas, we immediately notice a difference. The boys play roughhouse and have a grand time. They even break a lamp, which terrifies John. You're going to get it, he tells his cousin. Going to be grounded for a hundred years. But his cousin just shakes his head and tells him, ah, it's no big deal. Is it any wonder then, then when it's time to go home, John tells his parents, I don't want to go. I don't want to go home. Which leaves us wondering, what's going to happen now? Folks, Marilyn Lawson grew up in Kingsburg. She started writing at an early age. At 11, she had a story published in the Kingsburg Recorder. She received her B.A. in English from San Jose State and an M.A. from San Francisco State. Marilyn is retired from the Fresno Unified School District. A story of hers entitled Wire to Wire, which, by the way, we featured last year on Valley Writers Read, was published in Symmetry, the Reedley College Literary Journal. Thank you, Marilyn, for another gripping story tonight. 
Hope you're working on a new one for us for next year. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story, just go online at kvpr.org and link up with archived audio. Two stories next week, one by David Creighton and the other by Gary Hill. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.